Hey, I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 103, a conversation with Linda Kaplan Thaler. I had this conversation just yesterday in Linda's offices in busy, bustling Midtown Manhattan. But Linda and I go back a long, long way. In fact, back in the late 1960s, we wrote a whole bunch of songs. One of them, Not Yet Ready to Say Goodbye, appears on the Twice Upon a Rhyme album. You've heard me talk a lot about that album. It was released back in 1972. It's been reissued by a bunch of Sage record companies in the last few years. Linda and I co-wrote that song. So that's one of the songs that you'll hear on this podcast. But anyway, in addition to that song, you'll hear several other songs that Linda and I wrote. And Linda has gone on to have an extraordinary career. She, in 1983, for example, wrote the Toys R Us commercial. I'm a Toys R Us kid. I don't want to grow up. That was written by Linda Kaplan, became a huge success. Linda went on to create her own advertising company, Kaplan Thaler. And among the many things that that company has done is it put together the Aflac Duck commercial and many other commercial campaigns as well. And Linda has also worked in politics She worked on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign and on Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign. And in addition to all that, Linda is a best-selling author. She's co-authored four books, probably the best known of which is The Power of Nice. That's some good advice. And her most recent book just came out a few weeks ago. It's called Grit to Great. So you're going to hear us talking about all that and much more in the interview, which starts right now. So let's begin at the very beginning. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how you and I came into contact. You were friends with Tina, who was then my girlfriend, who later became my wife and still is. Is that what it was? Wait a second. Is that how I got to know you? Through Tina? I thought, I I can't remember how we met. I know, me neither. Is that amazing? Well, I think I have a very, Tina had something to do with it. Did Tina go to City College? Yes. Oh, then I knew her through City College. Okay, Okay, yes. What high school did you go to? Bronx Science. Okay, well, you might have known Tina from that, but you might have been like one class... When did, uh, okay, we won't say when that. we graduated because that All would right. date ourselves. All okay, right. yes. So anyway, so I remember, by the way, you hadn't you hadn't married her yet, right? But you used to tell me all the time about how much in love you were, and oh you were so attracted God. to her, and everything. And now you have uh, grandchildren? Uh, not quite. Not quite. Almost but grandchildren. They're work, okay, they're working. On they're it. working on it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm, I have to make sure Tina hears that because it's proof that I said that back then. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that. That that'll get me, you know, in good shape for at least a couple of yeah, a couple months. of weeks, a couple of months, yeah. yeah. But all right, so were you writing songs before you and I got to know each other, or did you start writing songs right around that time? We're talking about, I guess, the mid to late '60s, right? Like '67. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was writing. Uh, very, very, very bad songs. Um, I'm sure they were good songs. <laughs> I actually, the first song I remember writing, I can't believe it, because of course it had three chords, um, was There Once Was a King. And I wrote it when I was at Bronx Science. And, That's sweet. I, and I, you know, There Once Was a King, There Once Was a Queen, There Once Was a Man. It was a stupid song, but I had three part harmony, and my two very good friends, or three friends, uh, I had these three friends in high school, and we recorded it on a Wallensack tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, and we played it for the talent show. And then, you know, about 10 years ago, one of my friends said to me, you're not going to believe what I found when I was digging in my closet. She actually found the Wallensack tape Mm -hmm. and played it. That's great. And I could tell, you know how they say personalities never change? It wasn't so much the song, which was really awful, but I would stop every 10 seconds and go okay, you're not singing the harmony right, and you have to do this a little louder. 
And then my other friend would say, you know what, I really don't want to do this anymore because like, we've been doing this for an hour. And the other friend would be like, whatever you want to do is fine with me. It's like those were our personalities. Right, right. They were shaped. And I was That's all right. of maybe 13 years That's old. Right. But I was like, there is me, the type A personality obsessive. Yeah. There's my other friend who's like, you know, I don't want to put up with this stuff. And then the other friend, the good-natured one, who's still the same way, yeah. you know. Well, actually, it's no surprise then that you and I got along so well because I was exactly the same way. Yes. Like a little dictator. I had my <laughs> I told everyone. In fact, I also dug up an old tape, a guy by the name of Paul Gorman. I don't think I ever met him. I, I knew him so. since we were like in first grade, actually. Yeah. But when we were in high school, we were like singing together and we were doing like our renditions of I Only Want You by the Passions. I don't, da, 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 I only <laughs> want you. With all kinds of harmony. Yeah. But I remember very clearly driving those poor guys crazy because I, hey, hey, Dennis, you're like a little flat. You know, you got to do it over again <laughs> and stuff like that. So, we, you know, you and I. I would definitely have the same Well, way. do you remember that Ellie Greenwich? Yes. I, I was in the studio singing a song, some yes. song that we wrote together. Was yeah. it was it uh, Skyscraper? Well, it was either Skyscraper or Piece of the Rainbow. And it was on Buddha Records. It was on yes. a little, but not 45, I yeah. think it was. What, did Skyscraper get on Buddha Records? I don't remember that. It one of the songs that we had written was on Buddha Records because I remember it said Buddha Records, and she didn't end up signing us. Right. Well, she didn't sign me. I know because right. because I wasn't that good. No, you so, were very good. You no, but great, but, but she was not. She was. She had written. She was, you know, well, it's no, my party. You don't cry with her. Going to the chapel. Yes, yeah, she, she basically was married to Jeff Barry for many years, and they wrote a lot of hit songs, including even. Uh, I guess it was Jeff Barry and Ellie Grant who wrote some early Monkey songs. But the oh, two of them that. before that wrote They Do Ron Ron. Yeah, Do Ron Ron Ron. They worked with Phil Spector for a while. Sure. And yeah. what happened was, yeah. right around the time that you and I were writing songs, uh, Stu Nettickman, Ira, and I were in a group called The New Outlook. We were singing in Central Park one Sunday afternoon, and these two people walked up to us. One of them was Ellie Greenwich. Oh. And they, that's how I met Ellie Oh, okay. Okay, okay, she was okay. really very nice. She was, uh, and yeah. her partner, Mike Rashkow, who's still around, not quite as nice as... Is Ellie Greenwich still around? No, she isn't. She passed away? She passed uh, away about seven or eight years she's ago. She's so talented. She came back in the early 90s. She had a huge hit on Broadway for a while, where she was actually even performing for a while, but they were doing all her songs, you know, the kind of thing that they have now for Carol King or yeah, 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 yeah. The Four Seasons, uh, yeah. Jersey Boys. So Ellie Greenwich actually pioneered that in the early You know, Carol King actually sang backup, backup on something that my husband Fred Thaler recorded right. because her daughter, who was the producer of Beautiful, used yeah. to work with Fred. That's amazing. Sherry. Sherry, yeah. Yeah. And the Four Seasons actually sang a song about her. Sherry. That wasn't about her. No. No, okay. (laughs) No, but so we started writing songs together. We started writing songs together. I think Skyscrape was the first song. Yeah, and I wrote the music and you wrote the lyrics. And the lyrics were fabulous. Yeah, well, the music is fabulous. And on the podcast, we'll play the song so everybody can hear it. I I love hearing it. As a matter of fact, I dug it out of some old, uh, you know, digital file. Yeah. I, I discovered it a couple of weeks ago. And there's a, some kind of publishing company called Skyscraper. Oh. So I sat to them and they said, oh my God, it's so beautiful. So This is like recently? Yeah. Ah, it's like about so a week funny. or two ago. Clouds above the crowds that teem and dream. Below, 
speak in Japan, by the way? Yes, I am. It just goes to show you because I mean I love Japanese food, but yes, that, that was that's the reason. That's, yeah, I'm bigger in Japan than I am here. That's like a whole story in itself. In 2002, there was a magazine, and there still is actually, called Record Collectors Magazine. Not a particularly inspiring title, but for a magazine, yeah. they devoted a whole issue to lost cult classics, and they included my album, Twice Upon a Rock. Way to go! The only thing that was true, though, about it was lost. I don't think it was, it was by no means a classic. I don't know if it was cult or whatever. But you never know. But that's that what happens with those started. things. Yeah, that's yeah. so funny. Well, I played, the only thing I'm going to ask you to do is I was I played uh, the uh, skyscraper I yeah. played it for Fred yes. and I have to go through the whole album I was wondering the way that you could single it out so that I could put it on yes. my send it out because I want to Absolutely. do throwback Thursdays yes I'm going to well it, the email that I sent you yesterday has like four mp3s so each song that we wrote together where you sang is in a separate MP3. oh great okay so yeah, you yeah, can, yeah you can use that's going that. to be my throwback Thursday in a Good. couple well, of days I love yeah. that song we also wrote not yet ready to say goodbye although which, not yet ready to say goodbye sure gonna miss you just won't get by goodbye don't make it we, we can't for Take it. We're not yet ready to say goodbye. So that was on the Twice Upon a Rhyme album. Yeah. That's one of the songs that the people in Japan really like. Oh, I'm my goodness. They, they, that's what they always say, hey, this is Well, they never song. want to say goodbye. That's, that's right. That's, they're very, 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 very together people. That's yes, right. right. We also wrote a song called... Living in those people. paper houses. They're just <laughs> used to being with each other. Sound is very important when you live in a paper house. Yes. Because you can hear what goes on. Well, that's on when they song. say that the Japanese are very good at internalizing. That's right. Because they're constantly hearing people chatter, and so they can tune everybody out. That's something right. which I can't do. Me neither. I you know, we don't live in paper houses, but I'm constantly annoyed by my boisterous neighbors mowing yeah. the lawn, stuff like yeah, that. What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, what are you going to do? You have to be like a multi-multi-millionaire and get a house someplace on an island where there's no one around. Exactly. And even but, then... But then who would help clean the island? That's true. You know. Okay, anyway, yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote a song called The Peace of the Rainbow. You should listen to it. It's a really beautiful song. I wrote the she wrote the music. It's, yeah. it's sort of like a little allegory. Peace of the Rainbow. <laughs> Fell to the ground and burst into, into colors. A piece of the rainbow fell to the ground. 
Did your lyrics were so, you know, when I played for my, I was playing some of this for my husband, and I was like, I just don't, you know, it, it, those lyrics were just very you, and uh, you know. Well, thank you, but the music was very you too. You yeah, had like an unbelievable sweetness and melodic uh, quality. Well, maybe that helped me when I eventually wrote the Toys R Us song. Well, that's what I want to get to. Oh, so, okay. All right, so we finished. We wrote. I don't. We may have written five or six or seven songs. I don't yeah. really even remember. I also. We also. You also did a very nice recording of a song that I wrote with our guitarist Peter Rosenthal called "Cloudy Sunday," and I'm going to play that as well. Oh, okay. You didn't write that, but you really sound beautiful. Really, I yeah. don't have any recollection. Yeah, we put of on "Cloudy Sunday." Da, da, okay, that was nice like of me to do that. in the background. Okay. And all kinds of good stuff. So that was like the late 60s, 60s maybe early, early 70s. 70s, yeah. 
when I, I was four, five were, years old. We I was were, actually started so young. I know that. And you, you were, were only about six at the time. Right. Yes. We were prodigies. Child prodigies. Somehow, I got over to your house even though I was six years old. Your mother just let you on the bike. You went on the bicycle. Yeah, right. Training wheels. Yeah. I have a recollection that in, and I think it was like 1974. This is like the next time you and I did something together. That's when I was in Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Touring well, company. Yes. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Because yeah. I was at that point, I had dropped out of City College. I couldn't take it, and I was just doing my music. But I went back to New York oh, University. You did? I've actually got a, a, oh, okay. a PhD at New York University. But in my daughter's at NYU now. Yes, well, it's a good school. What's, which school did you go to? The uh, well, I got the PhD in the School of Health, Education, and Nursing Professions. Okay. But I got my BA just in the Washington Square College, whatever that's called. Okay, now. yeah. Not Gallatin. It didn't exist. That didn't yeah, exist. Yeah, just yeah. like their straight normal yeah, school. Yeah, even yeah, yeah. Though I was the complete antithesis of normal. Yeah. But anyhow, I was doing a television show. I don't know if you remember this. As part of one of the courses I was taking in television production. And I was doing a complete show, and I had this idea I'll invite Linda down to sing some of her songs, some of our songs, and you did come down. Really? I have no recollection of yeah, that. And unfortunately, but I don't a, know what I had for breakfast, so yeah, don't take a picture. Paper that somewhere, uh, and again, it'll you know how these tapes are. It'll yeah. emerge somewhere. There's an old, you know, I don't know if it's a real to real tape, a cassette tape, but a big one. Uh, so that was like maybe like the mid '70s. Okay. Uh, and then, sadly, it was my fault completely. You and I fell completely out of touch, right? I mean, we it, didn't have a fight or anything. No, we didn't have a. Fight By the way, at you all. know what I was doing at that time? Also, I did the first variety. TV show with my little comedy troupe, the Ed Sullivan Memorial Review, for Cable Access D. If you remember, I there was Cable remember. Access C and yes. D. If, if I had yeah. really been good, we would have been on A, but I don't think that existed. <laughs> and uh, and I always kid around, say that we 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 had a huge following. His name was Dave, right? And I, I, and he I, followed us like every good cameraman yeah, yeah. should. But but honestly, we we that was that was the first sort of comedy variety show on Cable Access in. In you know the New York area, and we had a little, we, we did have a little bit of following. People would kind of, yeah. you know, but that's what I was doing. Because well, I also remember come to think of it a, little, a few years earlier, seeing you. It was probably a college production, uh, p- playing guys Adeline and, dolls. and guys, guys and, and dolls. dolls. I remember you. Know, I'm develop some code. A Python can develop a bad, bad code. Besides, you were great. And maybe you kissed me, Kate, also at some point. Oh yeah. So, so you were, you were really fabulous back then as well. Uh, but no, we didn't have a falling out. It's just this is what happens with people. They go their own ways. Yeah, and one yeah, of the things yeah. about social media, which I love, is how I'm able to get back in touch with yep. people. I mean, this one guy, Joel Iskowitz, is another story in itself. He and I were like great friends in fifth and sixth grade. And then we were out of touch for, God knows, 45 years. Yeah. Now I have him doing covers for my books. He's like See, a world-renowned artist. Yeah. He always had some visual That's talent. great. That's yeah, great. So I love it's it. like um, my husband uh, was in, went to music and art uh, and on the basketball team with Bobby Mankoff. Okay. Uh, Bobby Mankoff, they picked up their friendship a few years ago. He is the editor of the cartoons for The New Yorker. He's very famous right. and has done thousands That's of cartoons for them. But yeah, and he's actually yeah. in our new book, Rich to Great. Yeah. I interviewed Excellent. him. Yeah. Excellent. All right, so now tell me about Toys R Us okay. because. I heard it and loved it. I had no idea it was you. This was like the mid '80s because we were that's totally right, out of touch. That's and, right. That's and, and right. It was all over the place. It was, you know, it was like on a bazillion commercials on television. Right. So how did you know that I wrote it? I didn't know that you wrote it. I didn't find out that you wrote it until maybe that was like what 1985. It's probably 1983. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I found out until you and I got back in contact, like maybe like 2004. That's right. When we got our, we all got together and had yeah. dinner. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, no, we were. I was at J. I decided I, I liked eating more than acting, and so I got a job at J. Walter Thompson, and one of the accounts, and all I wanted to do was write jingles. I mean, I actually wanted to work for a jingle company, but it was very hard to get those jobs, and so I figured, all right, I'll become a copywriter, and I had been doing my comedy thing and some off-off-Broadway stuff, but really making very, very little money. So my father told me about this guy who was at Grey Advertising, and maybe, get, you know, I put a book together, and then I did get a job writing on Kodak and Burger King and whatever, and we were at J. Walter Thompson, and we were pitching, and whatever I worked on, I would write a jingle for it. Right. And it always got rejected. And um, Story of my life. Story of my life, too. And so we were pitching the Toys R Us account. 
and Jim Patterson, my boss, now famous world-selling right. author, James Patterson, right. who's also one of our book were too great, and my art director at the time, Dina Vesey, came up with this great line, I don't want to grow up on the Toys R Us kid. And I said, excuse me, that has to be a jingle so that kids will sing it and they'll bother their parents because you could buy a Barbie anywhere, so you want to buy it here and you'll never grow up and you'll, you know... All right, all right, all right. So we invited all these people to do demos for us, and uh, the the guy who wrote uh, what's his name, famous, the guy who wrote Annie, um, Charles Strauss. Everybody was doing demos, and we right. didn't, we didn't like any of them. So I was playing for my art director. I said, you know, I sort of was fooling around on this toy piano, and I kind of wrote this song. And of course, everything I write comes out like a Broadway tune. So I want to grow up on the Toys R Us kid. I said, but it really it sucks. It's terrible. So my art director at the time, Greg Weinshanker, a couple of days later, he said, you know, you should really play that for the client. Um, it's it's very catchy. I said, no, it's terrible. It's awful. Well, it may be awful, but I keep singing it. I can't get it out of my head, you know. The word earworm had not been invented yet. Uh-huh. So finally, I play it for Jim, James Patterson, and he's like, Okay, well, let's play for the client because we don't like anything. And we're actually going to buy the rights to, um, uh, for Peter Pan, I Won't Grow Up. Mm -hmm. I won't grow up, I won't grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid, I'm a Toys R Us kid. But they. Yeah, but they they wanted yeah. a hundred thousand dollars, and that's right. why my song became better because yeah. my song was free because I worked for the agency, and so they tested it with little five year old kids against the Peter Pan version. And I'm in Jim's office, and he he's on the phone, and he says, "Well." You just wrote your first national jingle. The kids loved it. They don't know from Peter Pan. They were like four and five years old. So it goes on the air, and I'm still thinking, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen. And I first week, it's on the air. I hear a kid singing it on the street, and his mother saying to him, if you don't stop singing that friggin' song, you're going to miss the bus for school. That's fabulous. And then Jim, James Patterson, said, you know what? I think this might actually catch on because I was at Logan Airport and the waitress was singing your song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became, uh, I think it's the longest running jingle in American history. Who knew? But I, I, that was my dream uh, yes. to write a kid's song. Yeah. So. Well, you know, that's so uh, significant when somebody who is not a member of your family, who's not a friend, who's not a colleague, just a complete stranger out there, you see them yes. enjoying your work. I mean, it's funny you say Logan Airport because for me, one of those moments, my, my first novel is so cold. I'm sitting in the Amtrak station, South Station, Boston. They have like a little book nook. I'm not even sure if it's there anymore. And they pretty much only have paperbacks. Yeah. And I see this woman pick out this book. Your book? familiar, yeah. So then I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's probably going to put it back. But no, she looks at it, she has a smile on her face, and she buys it. I had to control myself. I felt talking about big hugs. I felt like running up. Did you say something to her? No, I didn't. Oh, you you should should have. have. What what way is that to talk to your mother? I don't know. Really? I, Mom, I, thank I, I, you so I, I, much. I think I was stalking her. Like, <laughs> yeah, of course. Want, I didn't want to. You don't want to like, jinx it. Like, like, like basically fracture the Yeah, right, joke. right. But, you know. See, do what I do. I go over to people and I go, I got to tell you, I don't know whether, you know, whether you're going to buy it or not, but that is just the best book out there. Yeah, well, that's what you have to do. And then you don't tell them that you wrote it. No, course. I know. I know. <laughs> that, that, right. That's, a, that's what we're marketing. You yeah, know, yeah. People, you know, Word of mouth. Just go to every bookstore there is. Yeah. But there's nothing like that feeling, right, where someone out there in the world, I mean, that's like the ultimate. Ratification, yeah, it is. And it gratification is. for you. It doesn't. Work. It doesn't get better than that. It really no, doesn't. No. Yeah, yeah. So this was fabulous. This was 1983, yeah. and you, this was like hugely, hugely important. I mean, look, I'm a Toys R Us kids is uh, is as big as you deserve a break today. The McDonald's commercial. Oh, I mean, it's up there. You. If somebody were making a top ten or even a top five yeah. of all time, or like plop, plop, fizz, fizz over the relief, yeah. it is. I'm a Toys R Us kid would be, you know, right up there. So you really did it. I mean, that's, that's oh, really amazing. Thank you. Well, I think that the, the, the other, you know, there are some great moments that I've enjoyed. One is working on the campaign, Kodak Moments, where I got to write a lot of music for that, and Burger King and, and, and Wendy's, which we do with Red, you know. But I think probably the, the hallmark of what our agency created was probably the Affleck Duck. Right, I was trying to get, get that. So, yes. so 1983 is Toys R Us. So now what year is the Affleck Duck. The Affleck Duck, he's about 15 years old now, I would say, okay. and we were asked to pitch it um, only because our agency was very small at the time. Um, the only reason we were asked to pitch it, I found out later, was that I had 
the guy who did the research for Aflac, his best friend, I had taken out to lunch to give him some advice on advertising 15 years prior right. and said, oh, I heard this little, this Linda Kaplan took me out to lunch once, so we should ask her to pitch. Right. I mean, the power of nice, right? So um, it became apparent with all the research that they gave us uh, about the product and wanting to do this highly emotional advertising and making people cry and... And we just had the audacity to say, putting the research aside, we said to the CEO, Dan Amos, a brilliant, wonderful, very intuitive kind of man, I said, Dan, what actually keeps you up at night? And he said, nobody can remember the name of my company. Even my relatives cannot remember the name of my company. It's hard to remember. So I said, well, that's what we're going to do. Forget about all this information. Right. It's like Woody Allen, 80% of life is showing up. I that's said, if nobody right. remembers your name. And so we're walking around, and nobody in the agency could remember what we were pitching. They had 3% awareness 15 years ago. So finally, I, and I kept screaming to everybody, the name of the company is Aflac. Aflac. Why is it so hard to remember? Aflac. So one of the art directors pinches my nose, and he goes, could you say that one more time? And I go, Aflac. He said, you know, I know this is crazy, but you sound like a duck quacking. And then the light bulb goes off, and it's like, that's it. The insurance salesman's going to be a a quacking duck, and no one ever hears him, just like nobody ever hears anybody in our society. And he's not the underduck. He's the the underduck. He's not the underduck. He's not the underdog. He's He's the the underduck. And and it's classic. I mean, the, the sales rocketed. You know, it, was it was extraordinary. Now, the last time we talked about this, which again was like maybe 2003, 2004, yeah. uh, I, I said, so when are you going to get Ben Affleck to... We tried. I, okay. And he's still saying no? Well, I you mean, know what his happened? His career hasn't exactly well, soared since Well, then. no, but he did. <laughs> he he won, you know, an Oscar yeah. for directing and all that. But no, actually, we kept thinking he was just one more bad movie away from doing the commercial because right. somebody, the writer of the Affleck advertising, Tom Amico, actually met him in an airport and uh, and also he used to go on talk shows because right. Affleck the advertising was so important it became like a little banter right. you know they would say oh Ben Affleck and he'd say not to be confused with that Affleck duck <laughs> and we said come on you gotta do a commercial right. we called him right. up or whatever he said I don't think I'm quite ready for that yet and and then his career sadly took off and right. so we lost that opportunity alright well listen I, I think you'll get it sooner or later <laughs> maybe who knows absolutely yeah. so uh, that, that's how you've also done work in political yes campaigns. tell us about that and if you're doing anything currently so uh, I worked on uh because of some of my very emotional work for Kodak and other brands, I was asked to work on uh, Bill Clinton's uh, presidential camp run in um, 1992. And uh, I was asked to do the really emotional stuff, so I did his biographical commercial, mm-hmm. and we used the footage of him shaking John F. Kennedy's hand, and it was right. great. That's a, by the way, that I wrote a short story about that called Transfer of Power. Transfer of Power, right. Yeah, where he, because basically there's something almost magical yeah. there, that John F. Well, Kennedy when I found that piece of footage, yeah, which they had been using for something else, I said, oh my goodness, that has to be the turning point. Do you mind if I say that was the turning point? Because yeah. I had him narrate it. It was like, you know, be my guest. So I said, that was the moment. And then I did something that he had not done before. I said, I would like you to narrate your commercial right. because you have an incredible voice. Yeah. And that was a big moment for me because I got this phone call going, the governor is so moved that him and Hillary have watched this now 15 times, That's that great. commercial. And then uh, they were nice enough to, well, Bill Bradley called me. I worked on his campaign in 2000. And then Hillary's team called me for the 2008 run, and she was amazing. The two of them are two of the most brilliant people you could ever meet. And when you meet them in person, you you know, photographic memories, unbelievable knowledge base, don't use any cue cards and so what can I say, you know? Democrat and passionate. Yeah, I love that about them. I never prepare any time for any lecture. I was once giving a lecture. Is that true? Paid, yeah, I was oh, once wow. giving like I once gave a lecture in Minneapolis, I was paid a huge amount of money, really. You know to talk about <clears throat> your books. You know, or? media and, Yeah, yeah. And I could just sort of tell that the people 
expect me to come, you know, with some kind of like really well-prepared yeah, yeah. thing, but, you know, I don't do that. So instead, I walked up to the stage with a blank sheaf of papers with with just a cover thing with really nothing on it. Just, to, just so that just they would so feel they comfortable. I was carrying something up and gave a talk for an hour, and everybody was saying, my gosh, you didn't look once that you're prepared. You know what? Colin Powell, um, uh, Colin Powell also, went, like me, went to City College, and um, I've been fortunate enough to be on his board of the Colin Powell School, and uh, I've been at numerous events with him. Um, one in Washington, I was on a panel, and he was the keynote speaker. And he never ceases to amaze me. He uses no notes, and he also watches all the speakers beforehand, so mm-hmm. he's always aware of what's going on and can reference yes, it. Yes, that's always good for him. But he's, bril- but he's yeah. like brilliant. He's like hysterical. He's inspirational. He's informed. He's current. It blew me away. He just spoke for an hour, and he is truly the best public speaker I've ever seen in my life. But I do need some notes. I mean, yeah. I, well, I, listen, whatever works for you. Although, although I have to say, <clears throat> there have been occasions where I had to rip up what I did because the person before me either said exactly what I was, was going to say, and on those occasions, what you do then is say, "This person said what I was going to say, but I'm going to say it better." No, no. What, what I ended up doing is I ripped up what I had, and I was with somebody from the agency, and I freaked out. But then I had a glass of wine, and I just told, I just talked, and it was actually the best well, speech I ever that, gave. It was I just mean. me talking yeah. about life, and it's like singing. I think, right? In other words, I guess there are some people when they sing, they may look at sheet music, but for yeah. the most part, you don't. I mean, you know it. You know, you're, you just it's like know your it. brain is yeah, running yeah. the show. Yeah. Um, so, well, let me ask the inevitable question. I, is there any connection between you and Hillary's campaign forthcoming in 2016? No, no, I don't, you know, nothing so far, you know, I'm cheerleading from afar. Right. Um, well, you, and you're cheerleading for Hillary, or are you, are Yeah, you I'm cheerleading for, well, I always cheerleading for Joe Biden to come in. I love Joe Biden. He's yeah. not running yet, you yeah. know, and I love Hillary, and I've been fortunate enough to meet her enough times to sort of get the under to really know how genuine and passionate she is. And I wish I could just get up there and just say, you have to, like, meet her in person. You just meet her in person, and it's completely transformative. Um, And, you know, the Republicans are doing their show right now, and they're just piling on with her, you know. And unfortunately, if Biden runs, they're going to do the same thing with him. Right, well, that's what they do. Same with the game, yes. They somehow managed to win. They, uh, and sometimes not. I and mean, they did not win in 2000. Right. They lost the popular vote. They would have lost the Electoral College had the Supreme Court not, in my view, unconstitutionally intervened and stopped the recount in Florida. But that aside... Thank you, thank you, Jeb Bush. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but they do get a lot of votes, and it's amazing why anybody would vote for them. I mean, I understand why a really rich tycoon would vote for them, but they get votes from average people. Yeah, they manage to convince people that, that they're, you know, yeah. for the poor people and... That's maybe, quite debatable. Maybe you should write a book about that. So let, let's get to your, your books. Okay. Um, so in addition to all this, you, you, you were and probably still are a songwriter. You are an advertising exec. You, you do campaigns for commercial operations like Kodak, for political campaigns like Bill Clinton in 1996, and even Al Gore in 2000. Was, did you do something for Al Gore in 2000? No. I thought you... No, I was working for Bill Bradley. Oh, short-lived. Right. Okay. Yeah. Short-lived. Yeah. Um, but in addition to all that, you find time to write how many books at this point? Eight? Well, I've, I've written, co-written with the founder of our company, Kaplan Taylor Group, Robin mm-hmm. Koval, who now has an amazing job at the Truth Initiative, which is used to be formerly Legacy, fighting, you know, smoking and, right. and and so she's saving a lot of lives so this is our fourth book okay. um, but you've written more than four books no we've, Arthur, this is a, it, really because yeah. I see your name all over on, on books but maybe uh, I'm oh yeah. no it's um, in a, you know so I write tell articles us what, tell us what the titles of the four books are well the first one is Bang Getting a Message Heard okay. in a Noisy World which right. was all about it was more inside the beltway about marketing and sort of how to be intrusive and creative thinking and all that stuff that was about 2005 or so it was some uh, yeah, around there, maybe a li- maybe a little bit earlier, okay. and then uh, the one that actually did the best called "The Power of Nice: mm-hmm. How to Kill the Business well, World a great with Kindness." Title. Thank you. And Donald about- Trump should read it. Donald Trump uh, has endorsed all our books, actually. Really? Yeah. Um, 
because I was on The Apprentice, and, and he was actually oh, very nice to me. Yes, yeah. several years ago, he was very nice to me. Well, it's he interesting, because I was actually quoted in a biography about Trump. And so was I. And yes. you know what? We talked about this when we, we had dinner. Yes. No but we had put his wife, Melania, in a very funny, very funny Affleck commercial where it was a Frankenstein commercial. Right. And the brain of the Affleck duck <laughs> became her and the duck became her. I mean, okay. it was hysterical. And actually, I, I've seen now <laughs> floating around on YouTube and CNN where they do little bios of her. Right. They and show the it, clip of the Affleck well, commercial right. that she did. I, I, I had a whole section in one of my books called it, It's the New Afterlife, and it's, a, it's an eternal right. afterlife. Anything that's been on any kind of video. That you've now, ever done. Yeah. And, and not only that, it goes back to audio. You can get audio clips from like the, the early 1880s. You know, the phonograph was invented in 1876. Is that true? Sure. You can hear, for example, Benjamin Harrison. The guy was president, uh, I don't know, like 1880. What a shelf life he ended up having. Yeah. And you can hear him say, and he sounds terrible because, I mean, the quality is Right. Poor. Oh, I didn't even know you could do that. But yeah. I, it's funny because when we changed offices and we had to purge a lot of stuff and I was so adamant about getting everything on the digital hard drive and scanning stuff. And then one day I said, wait a second. And I picked up an article that was in Fortune magazine right. that we were in. And I just Googled it. There it was. And I Googled my name and there were the, you know, everything that I had painstakingly yeah. said, we've got to transfer it. It's like yeah, all there, yeah. you it know. All there. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so we, um, so well, this so Power of Nice, Power of nice did great. And, so and Jay Leno, who I did not know, but I knew was considered one of the nicest guys in show business, we asked somebody who did PR for him if maybe his assistant could give us a story. And the next day, calls up my assistant, Fran, and says, Hi, this is Jay Leno. Somebody That's wanted great. to know. Yeah, he's such a great guy. Yeah. And he ended up writing for the forward for our book. We should have renamed the book Forward by Jay Leno. Yeah. But um, it did very well. And and then we did The Power of Small, uh, how, Why Little Things Make All the Difference. Right. And that was that was a, that was a joy to do. And this latest book, I'm so passionate about because I feel like, to a large part, America has lost its grit. We had this whole self-esteem movement where we were telling every, our kids, everybody's everybody's a winner and everybody's important. And everybody's special, but you know what? They're not special. Nobody's special. The only way you really get ahead, it's not by your IQ. As a matter of fact. Only 2% of people who are really born prodigies ever amount to anything. Mm-hmm. But 98% of successful people have what we call not the it factor, but the grit factor. Mm-hmm. Guts, resilience, initiative, and mm-hmm. tenacity. Right. And so we tell some amazing stories. Colin Powell was a C-minus student. Michael Jordan did not even make his high school varsity basketball team. Steven Spielberg couldn't get into the first three times he applied to film school. The list goes on. Right. Yep. You know. Yes. Um, well, that's a, a extremely important. One of the things I always tell my students about, which is, is, is tragic but instructive, uh, and there are lots of lessons in it. Uh, there was a book called The Confederacy of Dunces. It was a novel. I was just talking about this last right. night. Right, okay, so, and you know what happened? The I know what happened. Basically, gave up and committed suicide. That's right, and it, because for us. I can't stress, believe I was just talking yes, about this yesterday. We're definitely on the same way. And his mother found the book and she had it published. That's right. Won she the Pulitzer Prize. Univers- that's right. And so a you, brilliant book. A brilliant book. And so you talk about grit to great. In other words, I'm, look. You can't blame the publisher who turned it down for the guy coming. Well, you know what happened with Stephen King? Right. He was turned down by X number of companies. He wrote Carrie. Right. He was turned down by everybody. Right. He literally, and there, there was no copies made, he threw it in the garbage, and his wife, Tabatha, I forget what his wife's yeah, name is. Yeah, a good name for his wife. She, he, said, he said, that's it, I'm never writing again. And she picked it, and he always credits her, she picked it up out of the garbage, and she said... I'll be damned. This is going to get published. It's a great book. And he said, nobody wants it. She said, somebody will want it. And he said, that's the only reason that I became a writer. She took it out of the garbage. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, well, that I mean, that's so true of so many people. Yeah. The Beatles were turned down by 25 different record companies. I didn't know that. Yeah, imagine that. 25 different A&R people. And this is like, I want to <laughs> hold your hand. And she loves you. I don't know. It doesn't quite have a hook. You well, know? J.K. Rowling, and you know what? We, we talk about in our book, the guy... Um, James Dyson, who mm-hmm. invented the Dyson, Dyson vacuum cleaner, yep. had he worked for 15... Can you imagine waking up one day and said, I'm going to invent a better vacuum cleaner? Yeah. And 15 years later, he had 5,126 prototypes that sucked, or as I say, didn't suck. And um, 
before he came up with what he came up with, but all people see is this brilliant guy. They don't know this nut job right. that just yeah. did not give yeah. up. And yeah. so we want to tell people in, who are reading the book, yeah. don't give up. Yeah. Go for it, you yeah. know? Well, that's incredibly important advice. I'm going to recommend this book to all my students. Seriously. Good, good, and, good. And everybody that I talk to, because I, I agree with you completely. Look, Thomas Edison said that the success in being an inventor is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And, you know, we talk about, we, we, do, we do a little video that we show in a lot of, especially the colleges, we're doing a lot of college tours. Uh, Thomas Edison was told by his teachers that he was so addle-brained that he should probably be homeschooled, and that the only way he might make a living is by dint of his personality, because he had a nice personality. Right. But they thought he was an idiot. Yeah. And well, there listen, you go. Yeah. This gets back to the problem with traditional publishers, the problem with the educational system. Unfortunately, people who get into these decision-making levels, yeah. they themselves they're usually not that talented. And, and they're, they're scared. And they're scared. And so so they, they don't like anything. That's new. right. They're, they're, it's a safer thing to say no, because if, you, if everybody says no, then no one even knows who this person is. That's right. But if you take someone on... And, and, you, and it doesn't work out. out. That's right. Well, Jack Ma, you know, of Alibaba... Yes. Uh, he had a really tough time even getting into college. And then when he graduated, he couldn't even get a job at KFC as a server. Amazing. I mean, yeah. it just goes on and on it and on. It does go on well, and on. All right, so let's end this up. What's next for you? Do you have any plans? Well, I'm going to take a nap. Okay. That's well, actually, nap. That Thomas Edison would agree. Thomas oh, yeah, Edison was probably he took a nap every afternoon, regardless of what he was doing. There were pictures of him like sleeping, like on in, in like on a lawn outside somebody's house. You're kidding? I'm serious. Yeah, so well, you can probably it. better to do that in your own bedroom. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you don't want to get hit by lightning. That's or, true. Was that Thomas Edison who invented no. electricity? No, I'm thinking uh, of uh, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, I knew that. Right. I knew that. <laughs> Actually, very good friend of mine, Alan Zweibel. Uh, brilliant comedy writer. He used to write for SNL and he's written with... Um, I've heard Yeah, him. he yeah. just he has a book that came out the same day called uh, Benjamin Franklin Big, Big Pain in My Ass. It's a, it's yeah. a kid's book. It's, it's a really funny book. Anyway, so what's next is I want to tell the whole world that they have the potential for greatness and that grit is humanity's great equalizer because you don't have to be born with it you don't have to have a really high iq or great great sat scores or a silver spoon in your mouth or virtuoso talent that most people who became great don't ha didn't have any of those things um and i hope that the book and the lessons and the stories in the book will inspire people to just push harder especially we look in the last talk about the last chapter of grit for good is using it for good purposes mm -hmm. that one person really can have a huge effect and we tell those stories in the book on changing the world well you know if even just one person reads this book and then goes on to do something great that changes the world it will have been worth that it that will have been more than worth it that and 100,000 people actually buying it Absolutely. no just kidding well that's going to happen anyway. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> much well listen it was fabulous talking to you and we'll keep in touch okay the light on light through podcast well I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did if you want to get a copy of grit to great it's for sale all over the place but you can get a copy easily you can find a copy how to order a copy on the light on light through dot com webpage there's a nice big picture of the book there you click on that picture it brings you right to Amazon that's lightonlightthrough.com, L-I-G-H-T-O-N, L-I-G-H-T-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com. It's a good thing I can spell. Anyway, so you'll find a copy of that cover on that webpage. In addition to that, lots of other goodies on the webpage for this podcast episode. For example, you'll find a link to, to Tony DeSanto's demo of Not Yet Ready to Say Goodbye. That's the song written by Linda and me that's on Twice Upon a Rhyme. But Tony also recorded a really cool demo of that, and there's a link to that on the webpage. And you'll find a link to a video of a concert that I did just this past August 15th in Ronkonkoma, New York, at a science fiction convention called LICON 2. And at that concert, 
you'll hear and see me and Peter Rosenthal, the original Twice Upon a Rhyme guitarist. You heard me talk briefly about Peter uh, in the interview with Linda because Peter and I wrote Cloudy Sunday, which Linda sang, and that's one of the songs you just heard in the podcast. So, Peter and I and his son Bob put on a concert in August. You can watch the whole video of that on YouTube. The link is also on the Light On, Light Through webpage. And lots of other things you might find of interest on that webpage, including lyrics to all four of the songs that you heard in the podcast. So, I'll be back really soon with another episode of Light On, Light Through. We're going to end this with a word from our sponsor, namely me, talking about one of my science fiction novels. And I'll see you here soon. In the meantime, enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson still code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.